Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the show, powered by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a two-time A-League Premiership coach and a dual A-League Coach of the Year. Scottish-born Ernie Merrick was the inaugural manager of Melbourne Victory before embarking on stints in Hong Kong, New Zealand, and Newcastle in a coaching career spanning four decades. He is now a mentor to St Kilda coach Brett Ratton in the AFL. Ernie, welcome. Great to have you with us. It's good to be on, Sam. You just have to be. You just have to be one of those people who occasionally find themselves amazed at where life takes them, don't you? It is always a surprise. Uh, my son just recently applied for a couple of jobs. He didn't get the first one or the second one, and he got the third one. I said, "It's funny. The third one is usually the best one, anyway, and that's what the way it's worked out for him, and it's the way it works out for me quite often." And I ask that because I'm sure when you were a young fella running around the streets of Stewarton in Scotland. You would never have envisaged that by 2022, you'd be on the other side of the world, employed by St Kilda Football Club, who plan a domestic competition called the AFL that you never would have heard of. <laughs> You're spot on. <laughs> when, I, when I arrived, in, uh, it was May in 75. I remember my mate who talked me into coming here, Derek Hay, who's the brother of Colin Hay, and he, he talked me into coming to Australia, and he kept saying, oh, he says, girls have all got suntans. They're not white and <laughs> pure white and like they are in Scotland. He says, and the beaches are just full of bikini-clad girls. And uh, and when I arrived, he drove me from the airport down through Beach Road, and I was amazed at how close the city was to the beach. And uh, all these football grounds that were oval-shaped, they weren't rectangular, and they had two big posts and two wee posts. I says, what's that all about? He says, oh, that's the game they play out here. I says, why do they have four posts and no crossbar? <laughs> he says, ah, well, they sort of help the players out, even if they miss, they give them a point, you know, and that sort of thing. I was down on the beach in the afternoon, 15 degrees, sunbathing, and I never saw one bikini-clad <laughs> girl on the beach. I said, you've lied to me. <laughs> he, he says, it is autumn. You clown. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. I love uh, Europeans are all the same when they see footy, our footy. They think, well, it's like the encouragement point, isn't it? They give you a point for trying. It's like, we can see what you're doing, so we'll give you a point, even though you've missed. It's a waste of time, that point, by the way. I've got to tell Brett right in that. And I've got to make him a lot more miserable. He's too happy. Look. <laughs> How, how did you find? How did you find yourself at the Saints? Was it a, a chance meeting at a, at a cafe? Yes, it was. I, I caught up with David Rath. I knew David when he was at the Australian Institute of Sport, and I was at the Victorian Institute of Sport. And uh, I said, "What's happening?" He says, "Oh, we're just in pre-season." I said, "Well, do you want to know a little bit more about soccer?" And he says, "Well, maybe not, but come and give us a talk anyway." So I, I gave the coaches a, a talk one day over at uh, Linton Street at their training ground, RSCA training ground and then I got a call a week or so after that saying would you like to get involved with uh, Brett and just we're just trying to 
make sure he's got every opportunity to do well and we need someone here. And I said, what, do you need a comedian or something? I'll, I'll give you a hand. I said, I know nothing about the game. <laughs> and uh, and it, it was just a chance meeting and a talk and a chat. And uh, as soon as I met Brett, we just clicked. He's a really nice person and a terrific coach. Yeah, he's a great fella. And you're right, probably needs to be a bit grumpier. So if you're not there to tell him how to keep Paddy Cripps quiet on the weekend when they when they play Carlton in any given week, what actually do you do there at Moorabinurney, may I ask? Well, we're both involved in team invasion sports and uh, really coaching is... The, the technical aspect of the game is different. There's you handball and, and kick out the hands, etc. We dispose and acquire the ball through tackling, gaining penalties through rolling around in the box, holding our knee, silly <laughs> things like that. But the basics of the principles, penetration, depth, width, etc., that, that's one aspect of the game. But I think as a coach, you're always trying to create an environment. You're, you're creating a philosophy. You're shaping the environment. You're trying to set a culture and a standard of respect and and get buy-in from the players. And all those aspects are fairly common to all coaching roles because the bottom line is you don't coach skills. You actually coach people. Mm. So first and for, foremost is getting that mindset and those relationship skills right. And I think I'm a good sounding board, having been through some of the things that I've been through and can give a little bit of experience in my background of being sacked after being in two grand finals. And um, and at the same time, on the technical aspect, I wouldn't try and tell Brett anything about what to do from a coaching perspective, game plans, etc. But I can maybe help uh, him set up with his line coaches, and they're all very good as well, uh, 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 creative learning environment which is game scenario scenario based and that they they can come up with the ideas but I can help them in that respect and you know what sort of preparation do you want do you want to be to be realistic decision making under pressure and under fatigue choosing the right options to the game plan is it an attacking game plan etc so I guess it's just a bit like asking the right questions and and uh, talking about opportunities and options so a mentor, a friend, a sounding board, or is it all of the above at different times, depending on what Brett might need? Absolutely. Brett determines what my role will be. I mean, uh, there are certain areas that he would want to improve in, and um, and he wants honest feedback in those areas. And uh, so I'm supposed to be a critical friend. I like to think I'm more of a friend than a critic. So yes, it's just, it's a relationship that's probably growing in international sports more and more. I discovered the other day that Pep Guardiola, who's just won mm. the Premier League again with um, with uh, Man City, he has had a, a mentor for quite a while and his mentor again is from outside the sport. He's a an ex-top-level uh, Spanish water pour, polo player. I just read that recently, yeah, right. trying to justify my position and, <laughs> and improve in my Ted Lasso impersonation. <laughs> yes, uh, Ted Lasso in reverse, isn't it? So what? What a lot's said about the generational change in athletes now and how for a coach now it's as much about listening as it is telling, as much about embracing vulnerability as it is about adopting a, a tough veneer. Do you subscribe to that theory? Yes, I do. I like to think uh, I managed to change from my initial attempt at coaching in 78, 79, and then uh, as an assistant and then a head coach at 1980. I think for the first 10 years, I ruined a lot of teams and players. I, my, I thought in those days, I think that the technical side was really all about fitness training. 
and relationship skills was all about being tough on people. And uh, I've changed enormously in that area and had struggled to find someone to bounce things off of. In fact, I actually used an AFL player or a VFL player in those days called Barry Richardson, who happens to be my brother-in-law. And I'd bounce some ideas off him and I'd say, look, we get bullied every week. He says, well, you just got to punch them. Have you got a Neil Bam type player around? (laughs) (laughs) He can rely on, he says, I relied on someone like that. But, you know, just someone that talks common sense. Uh, And since then, Ronnie Smith at the AIS head coach, he was a mentor for me, and more recently, Neil Craig from footy as well. So there's a range of people that you can just bounce things off of and and gain some experience from them. So just as an extension to that then, I mean, you were a football manager at, at various levels over the better part, as I said, of four decades. How important did you learn of the need to adapt, to change, to almost reinvent oneself? I think any head coach in any sport has got to completely produce another iteration within three to five years. You've got to innovate completely. You've got to change completely. And not only have you got to change the way you relate to people, um, but I think your method of shaping the environment and the preparation program. I mean, look at sports science. My background is exercise physiology and sports science. Look how much that's changed in the last few years. Uh, Recovery and rehab of players has just improved enormously. Fitness preparation has changed. I remember watching uh, in 75, uh, there was a guy called um, Paul Callery and Jeff Moran, and they were PE teachers at the school I was teaching at, Morris High School, prior to my arriving there. They gave me tickets for the games, and I watched uh, St Kilda in the 70s, and uh, Cowboy Neil at the back, Robbie Muir in the middle, Trevor Barker, who was a wonderful player, but a lot of them didn't really have the build that they have nowadays, which is you know lean and mean and very agile, can, well-conditioned athletes. I wouldn't say Cowboy Neil was the most well-conditioned. Well, you said <laughs> but, it all, though. <laughs> Cal, Cal Dittridge, every team had a big, tough guy, yeah. hard man. And, you know, I, I don't ever remember watching them win a game, but I always enjoyed the atmosphere at the place and the after-party drinks. <laughs> in fact, coincidence would have it. I was staying in a, uh, a unit with Derek and um, my brother Peter, and... Uh, we had a party one night and someone had invited the St Kilda players. Half of them turned up and, well, it was a wild party. At the end of the night, I just went to bed. I couldn't I couldn't hang on any longer. <laughs> and someone says, listen, there's a guy who won't leave. Maybe you should have a chat with him. I, give us a hand. I says, who is it? He says, his name's Robbie Muir. And I says, no, I'm not helping. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're off and running here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, the circus tent, the flying trapeze, the high wire. Ernie Merrick takes us back to his unique childhood right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to highly successful football manager Ernie Merrick. So Ernie, I hope you don't mind me saying this, you're born January 15, 1953 in Edinburgh into a family of circus performers. Yes, um, I, they weren't actually around when I was born, but we came from, on my mother's side, uh, uh, a family circus. My We traced... My great-great-grandfather, he came over from Italy and he was a lion tamer. And he started the family-type circus. Uh, his name was uh, Ambrose Salvona and uh, it was called the Salvo's Circus. I've got, I've got a 1935 poster here in my house somewhere. I'll have to find it. <laughs> but um, he started the family circus and the circus in those days wasn't an international circus that it is today. But... Uh, even when I was really quite young, I remember the, some of the performances. My mother was a acrobat, um, clown, comedian. She um, she uh, she was famous for going in one of those boxes, and, the guy, and her and her uncle would put knives through the box, and she was called the woman without middle. And I don't know how they did it. I think she got stabbed a few times. But uh, and my father's side was more side stalls, you know, darts and and rifles, and so. Up to the age of about six or seven, um, we I lived in a caravan and we went did the circuit. The circus, not this, the circus wasn't uh, still going then. It just finished, I think. And um, and, uh, and then we settled into a house in Stewarton by the age of seven, eight, and we actually started school for the first time. My brother and I, who started a bit late, and my sister. And a younger sister as well. And uh, but up until the age of fifteen, I'd still move around with the circus and uh, with the side stalls more, with the fairgrounds and work with my aunts and the jobs here and there and earn some money. But I enjoyed the the travelling life. I enjoyed staying in a caravan. It was all fun. But it's a pretty tough life now. And that was before videos and yeah, even cinema wasn't that big then. But it must have been magical as a kid, you know, whether it be the circus or the fairgrounds, getting in the caravan. You must have some, even if it's understandably hazy, some magical memories of, of life on the road. It was it was terrific. We, we, we call ourselves travellers. Fairground people often call themselves travellers because you travel a lot and... Uh, and it's great. You got different neighbours, and you always caught up with. I always caught up with the the kids of the other, the parents of the other, and they might have had the the, the carousels or the, the darts or whatever. And then in winter, we'd go into uh, usually there's a famous place in Glasgow called the Kelvin Hall, and uh, there was also a, another indoor sort of venue in Edinburgh, and just just mucking around in those places while the other kids when you didn't really have to do anything uh, as youngsters. It was just great fun. I just seemed to have a life of fun, to be honest. Awesome. So after all of that, you get to school, of course. What did a teenage Ernie Merrick want to do with his life and where did what path did you take? I had no idea. I, I liked sport. I was reasonably good at sport and um, and I liked cars. So I used to, I, think, I don't think my father was very happy one day when I took his engine apart of his car. I sort of, he said, there's a problem with the thing that I don't know if it's a fuel problem or an ignition problem. Can you have a look at it? I took this car apart completely and he came out. <laughs> he says, he, he says, the problem is just the fuel. You just had to hit the old fuel pump and it would have gone again. <laughs> that was for the days. But uh, I quite enjoyed the idea of being a mechanic or something. But I finished up 
my hero was my school teacher, who was Jim McFadgen, who was a PE teacher, a PE teacher. And uh, he was played, he played for Kilmarnock, the local team. Over in Scotland, you always chose two teams to follow. One was your local team and one was either Rangers or Celtic because they're, they're the only two that ever won anything. So um, he was a bit of a hero and he was a PE teacher and he played for Kilmarnock. So I went down the PE side and, and did teacher's training college with Derek Hay in Scotland before his family moved out to Australia. Now, you were a pretty handy footballer yourself, weren't you? I mean, how would we describe you back in your playing days? I'd say I was a pretty average footballer. Um, I remember at college, when we went to college, they had college teams and you were encouraged to play for the college. And um, they had these trials and I was selected in the fourth team. So I went straight to the director and said, you know, I think you've made a mistake here. I'm in the fourth team. I says, what, why is that? And he says, well, Ernest, to be very honest, the only reason you're in the fourth team is we don't have a fifth team. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be in the fifth team. I was, I was a bit slow. I worked my way up eventually, but I, um, I think I lacked in the area of every area that begins with S. I was a bit slow. I lacked skill, and I was often scared, and I was definitely soft. So I, I decided that I was, after teaching for a year in a place called Easter House, which was a tough area, but enjoyable first year of teaching. That's when I was getting, it rained for seven months without a 24-hour dry spell. And Derek Hay and his brother Colin are sending me these postcards and photographs and tell me about, as I said, these beaches and girls in bikinis. So I gave in to them and and I decided I wasn't going to be a full-time professional footballer. I got as far as semi-professional with a team called Sherlston. And... um, and I thought, well, it has to be a better life than the weather here. Economically, Scotland was not doing well. So so I just jumped on it. I borrowed money for a car and jumped on a plane, to be honest. But I did pay the, the bank back for the car, which I never bought. And uh, I finished up in Australia. So Derek Hay sells you the big dream. You come to the land down under. You meet Ron Smith that you mentioned, who was with the Australian Institute of Sport at the time. Now, Ron helped you through, I suppose, the necessary accreditation courses when it comes to coaching. So I think you said before you were fully qualified by, what, 24, 25. But I think you said you had never had any, at that point, any intention of becoming a coach. No, I was, I was never keen on coaching. I, I think I did the qualifications more as a PE teacher. Um, I just wanted to improve skills in different areas. I also did a football coaching course and uh, because there was a lot of American PE teachers out by then. So the VFL, as it was then, organized coaching courses for everyone. Kevin Sheedy and Ron Barassi were two of the instructors. And uh, they did pull me aside and say, you're wasting your time here. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was... It was not, and I never really wanted to be a coach. I, I just, I was a PE teacher. And uh, of course, when you're a player and they discover you're a PE teacher, the coach usually goes, listen, you, can you give them some exercises? And so I sort of gradually got involved more that way. And then uh, the senior coach, Danny McMinnamy at Dufton, he left. And um, he says, you should take the job. But I, I knocked it back twice and took it on the third time. And uh, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, with this is your journey brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online at, of course, tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, up next, what Ernie just touched on, his managerial career really started completely by accident at Dovton in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. We'll explore that after this. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with long-time football manager Ernie Merrick. So, Ernie, paint the picture for us. It's the early 1980s. You're at Dalton Soccer Club. For those who don't know, about 40-so kilometres outside of Melbourne. And you're pushed into the top job, it would appear. I mean, did you even know what you were doing when you took over there? I didn't have a clue. And, uh, and I remember the first game that we played. It was against Green Gully, who were top of the league. And uh, we were getting well beaten. We were down 3-0 at half time, And I thought, I've got to do the team talk here. And I've never done a team talk. So I was a bit concerned because the players were a bunch of hooligans and they were mainly mates. But the, the, I started the team talk and they, sort of, they did pay attention to me. And I thought, well, I've won them over because I, I felt as though they went out with a different attitude altogether. And then we got thrashed another three goals, so we lost 6-0. So I, just, I think there was a little bit more to this than I realised. But but I don't know if the, the light came on then. You were enjoying it. It didn't take long for the bug to to, to catch on, did it? It did. It did. But uh, they were struggling to... Any players that were any good, I seem to, apart from victory, any club I'm at, after the boys, one or two of the boys do well, they move to another club. And so we lost a couple of players, and that's my excuse for not doing so well. But I kept them up. That was the main thing. In those days, it was promotion relegation. And uh, I really enjoyed it and made some great friends and played against some great friends. And five of us, five Scots lads who all married Australian girls, still get together every two or three months, have a meal, have a barbecue, and we talk about how good we were in the olden days. And, of course, we're far better then. Now you talk about it, you're always better then. But right. uh, it was it was good, it was good so, fun. So after Dubton, you skip around a bit. You go to Frankston Pines, Preston Lions, Sunshine George Cross. Uh, Thirteen years at the VIS, the Victorian Institute of Sport, and then came what I assume most would describe as the baptism of fire. The A League's inaugural season of oh five oh six, and your job as manager of Melbourne Victory. You finished second last, Ernie. Did you fear they might panic? And sack you after one year. Gary Cole was the operations manager who actually talked me into applying for the job because I had no intention of applying for the job. I was thoroughly enjoying the Victorian Institute of Sport and working with elite youngsters and helping this national coach at under-17, under-20 levels, which was Les Shineflug for a while and Angie Postacoglu for a little bit. But uh, he convinced me by saying that the board was made up of AFL board members ex-AFL guys and Jeff Lord was the chairman they'll give you a three-year deal so when we finished and but trouble with Jeff Lord was he knew what he wanted to achieve but he wanted to do it on a very small budget so he said listen just bring half the team from the VIS I says look they're 17 18 19 year olds he says that'll be fine I said but we won't have success but and that's exactly what happened we finished second bottom but we had the basis of a good team I mean the toughest areas to sort out are up front and down back. Uh, and we had Archie Thompson and Danny Alsop, and they are two fantastic strikers. 
down in, in goals, we had uh, Michael Theoklatos, who's a tremendous goalkeeper. And I let Angie, I let uh, Eugene Galekovic go because he was such a good goalkeeper as well, again from the VIS. It was the midfield predominantly we had to sort out. So after the first year, he, Jeff Lord called me in his office and I thought, I knew it, I'm going to get sacked. He's pretty small, so I'm going to have to punch him. <laughs> I thought, I'm not going to take this. If I've left the VIS, I'm going to have to, because it was only because he was pretty small. And he says, sit down, Ernie. He says, no, I wanted to say it. I says, before you say it, he says, no, no, I'm going to speak first. What do you need? I nearly fell off my seat. Yeah. I've never had a chairman say, what do you need? Yeah. So I said, I only need three players. He says, have you got three in mind? I says, yes, actually. He says, well, who do you want? I says, there's a guy called Lionel Messi, Ronaldo. Testing his pockets No, I, I had Roddy Vargas tipped. We needed to sort out the midfield. Roddy Vargas, I knew of Grant Brebner, who was playing in the Premier League in Scotland. I wanted to move Musket into midfield so he could kick people there rather than out in the ring. It's like what you were saying. Every every side has a hard man. He was your, he was your muscle man. Yes, he was, and he did a good job for us. There's no doubt about it. And then we needed a creative... Uh, a midfielder so I found him over in uh, Brazil they sent me over to Brazil I couldn't believe it I thought I had to keep pinching myself I said here I am Rio de Janeiro <laughs> looking for a soccer player and uh, Jeff Lord to his credit just gave us what we needed and uh, mind you there's always the media is out to get you and there was one particular media guy who had been picking on me that whole year that first year when we finished second bottom so in the second year we won seven games straight, the first seven games, and I goes there, have a look at the paper, see what he can say now, what is he going to say now? And he got me again, he says, yeah, Merrick's in trouble now, he's peaked too early. <laughs> <laughs> he can't win, he can't win. Well, you didn't, you won the, to- you won the title, you won the title. Uh, an, yeah, un- an unbelievable yeah. night at, at the then Telstra Dome, 6-0 against Adelaide, and Archie goes and bags five. I, it was a sellout. I remember it well. The roof was open. I think a bit of drizzle coming in. An unbelievable night for not just you and the victory, but I reckon the whole comp. It was a great night, and it was a bit of a crescendo for victory. We did go on to play in two more grand finals in the next three years, but uh, that was a bit special. You're not, that's not going to be repeated. No one's going to score five goals. <laughs> the grand final. Deadlock still to be broken. Maybe this is the chance. Fred through. Archie Thompson! Goal! Ball's over the line. Mark Shield has signaled the goal. And Archie Thompson, the man who never scored against Adelaide, puts that statistic. Very simple one-two with Fred. And this is where Melbourne are dangerous. Also running at pace. Fred on the outside. Fred in. Archie Thompson! Sensational goal! Musket, a lovely ball from Musket, Thompson again, Archie Thompson, 3-0, and maybe that will bring the championship to Melbourne, Archie Thompson has a hat-trick, he'll take the match ball. And of course Archie being Archie, I remember during the game, I'm Gary Coles next to me, Nara and Healy on the other side, and I'm going, there's Archie, he's got the ball, he's intercepted, that's great, now pass it to Daniel, Archie pass it. Archie, a greedy little great goal, Archie. <laughs> You're just about to nail him, and he scores again, he scores again. Fred, Melbourne will break with pace, four on three. Thompson onside, this could be a four for Archie Thompson! That's it, surely, for Melbourne. They're singing in the rain at the Dome, and the trophy is heading for the victory cabinet. Well, Lance Costanzo's... Robinson 
Fred. Allsop darts towards the near post. Thompson! Well, the ball is just glued to his boots. Of course, 10 minutes before the end, he pretended to be injured so he could go off and wave to the crowd on his way around. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, I got on great with him. His first year, he was a handful, but I don't think his head was in the right space because uh, he just we had brought him back from Belgium and finished second bottom of the league. So after that, that win, uh, that was it. He was terrific to work with. We could talk about yeah. We could talk about Melbourne victory for hours and hours, and the game was riding a real high there off the back of the Socceroos in the 2006 World Cup in Germany. How do you reflect on the the ten months with the Hong Kong national team that came thereafter? Is the word restrictive unfair? No, it's it's correct. It's um it's an unusual setup, Hong Kong. Um, the 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 national body, and it's it was autonomous from China then. Um, the the football body, um, it was actually the, the the government or administration, I should say. It's a, it's an SAR. The Hong Kong SAR actually wanted to improve the football, the international team, and play more football games. And they just felt that the the board, which the board was made up people that owned teams, and their priority was their team, and they wanted to say in everything, including the national team. So the, the government said, well, look, we, we want to bring in a, an overseas coach, an overseas CEO. So they brought in myself as a coach, Gordon Mackay from Scottish Rugby, and uh, the AIS, uh, Steve O'Connor, te- uh, the AIS football coach. So we tried to change things, but it was a fight all the way. It was very tough. The players were great, great to work with. We, we won our first three games. The press were terrific. In fact, the press were the best ever. They really wanted us to stay. But in the back of my mind, I remember reading the number of coaches that they'd had in the last 10 years. They'd had 11 coaches in 10 years. And I wasn't the first choice. Someone had gone over there from England and lasted a week and walked out. So I, as usual, I was second or third choice, like the fourth team. So, um, But we started off really well, but then the interference became too great. One, one owner of the team owned two teams and uh, results weren't always as they should be. So to get, they, they managed to get rid of the CEO after five months. I lasted the year, but in the end, I think we had a game against Singapore and five of the starting 11 players were unavailable. One was sick, one retired, one disappeared off the face of the earth. And I don't know what happened with the other ones. So they, they were determined to get me. They got me because I wasn't helping them pick the team and tell me what to do sort of thing. So, But I, I did enjoy my time there. Amazingly, it was the media that wanted me to stay as well as the players. The media... Uh, I got, in fact, for a year or two afterwards, I used to get regular emails from the from media guys telling me what's happening next and, you know, are you going to come back? Because uh, I, I think they saw what was happening and they wanted change. But I don't know what's happening now. That all happened in 2012. Things weren't quite as severe at Wellington Phoenix. There were challenges, not challenges that severe. But how much satisfaction came from taking a, what was then a battling team to third on the table and in a manner in which they were playing at the time under you attractive as an attractive a brand of football as they'd ever had it was again uh, everywhere I've gone to I've really enjoyed the people and the players and the opportunity and the New Zealand people were just fantastic the the club is owned by about seven wealthy uh, Wellington people and um, two of them still keep in touch one of them's over here at the moment I've been on holiday with them so the people are great 
the team just lacked a little bit of direction. Again, as a coach, you're trying to you're trying to instill a vision, saying this is what we could achieve. This is how we have to go about it. This is the sort of, and then you have to shape the culture and the determination and there was never short on being pretty tough and going for it and uh, and playing a very positive brand of football I think we scored over 50 goals in that first yeah. season second season first season we didn't do so well second season we got them into third and they were looking really good but um, after two years they re-signed me again for another three years and uh, the weather was a bit too Scottish-like to be very honest and it was always difficult to gain results at Wellington Phoenix because, again, if you produce some good players, they couldn't wait to go to a bigger club and move on. And and one went to, to our top goal scorer went to Tokyo uh, to uh, Euro Reds, I think it was. And um, and when there's an international, because we didn't, the league didn't respect international FIFA dates, I'd lose up to eight starting eleven players in New Zealand. Yeah. And then the travel was, we coped well with the travel. It was just, it was international travel every second week. But when you got back to Wellington, it was, oh, don't unpack because you're playing the next game in Christchurch or you're playing in Auckland. So we played about three or four home games away from home as well. So I just felt as I couldn't have success here. So I resigned. I resigned twice. The first time they talked me out of it. The second time they accepted my resignation. But we we've, we parted on good terms and uh, I really enjoyed my time there. We're talking to Ernie Merrick on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Live. Stick with us. We'll be back with Ernie right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Football coach Ernie Merrick has been our guest today. So, Ernie, you also spent more than two and a half years at the Newcastle Jets. You joined them after they'd finished bottom. They'd lost top goal scorer Andrew Naboo, yet you take them to a grand final and your old Bob, of course, as the script writers would have it, Melbourne Victory are there waiting. It was, uh, it was a great first year there and uh, we went from bottom to uh, second top played in the grand final against victory and I felt as though we had the team to win I mean we just the way Newcastle would 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 find players is find someone that's on his last legs and or not getting a chance that had and Andrew Naboot had come from victory uh, after being in Asia, he'd been in victory and struggled to score goals, but I saw potential in him. He finished up our top goal scorer, but we let him go in January and the, the grand final was in March, so we lost him straight away. But the, the Riley McGree was a terrific player that I reckon I could turn into a goal scorer from midfield, which we did. Not just me, the, the coaching staff as well. Um, uh, there was uh, Joey Champness, a left winger that uh, we'd find, found they came from uh, the youth team at Brisbane Roar. So these these young players that we felt as though could score score goals for us, and they they all started scoring goals because I I just felt as though if you have a real attacking policy, people sit back on you. Uh, if you if you play a counter attacking game, you might 
do okay and finish in the top half, but you're not going to win anything. So I've always believed in attacking football and we were very successful. And I felt as though we could have won that grand final. We, we lost Andrew, but we still had enough goal scorers. But um, the VAR stuffed us up. There was, as you remember, there was three, four players offside. And it's funny, the VAR went down one minute before that goal and it, it came back online one minute afterwards, which is very strange. <laughs> Coincidence? So, it was a coincidence, I think. Yeah, and so they scored in the ninth minute. That goal you mentioned it was the earliest goal ever in a grand final, except it wasn't. It wasn't a goal, as you mentioned. Did it? And you went down one nil. Did it anger you, Ernie? Maybe in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, that the FFA never apologised to the club or or its fans. Yes, I I, um, I think it didn't. It wasn't immediately afterwards. I'm, I'm pretty calm on the bench and afterwards uh, someone asked me about the VAR and I said why would we use it if, if that's the quality during a grand final of all times about it to go down and to me the VAR is a good thing if it's utilised properly and it has enough cameras but it, they never had enough and I still don't think they've got enough cameras for the VAR to be used properly and uh, the referees are still in training <laughs> but um, I, I, it was more afterwards because it, it would have changed that club around enormously if we'd won that grand final. We might have been able to hang on to the seven starting 11 players that we lost within the next 12 months. I mean, we lost seven starting 11 players. So we finished just outside the finals next year and I got sacked seven seven games, I think, into the next year. And I was sacked by the CEO who is an ex-coach and should have known better, Laurie McKenna. In fact, he is a as the CEO had sacked five coaches. He'd had, he'd had five coaches in five years that he was CEO. And so he'd learned nothing. So it was all, it was all very disappointing, but I got more and more annoyed afterwards thinking about it. Yeah. But then after a while, you've got to think, oh, well, you've had a good run. Don't worry about it. Move on. And I've done that. I think <laughs> I still get counseling occasionally. Oh, I don't blame you. It's a, it's a, one of those, <laughs> A sliding doors moments for the worst, isn't it, when it comes to a career? And so many moments, of course, good, bad, and otherwise. I, I know you've got some thoughts on confidence, Ernie, which is a word that comes up all the time in sport, elite-level sport in particular. I guess the need for it, the hunt for it, and then when you've got it, the need to keep it. And how do you keep it? You don't necessarily subscribe to that, do you, though? Is that is that for your philosophy too emotion-based? Yes. Um, confidence is uh, an emotion. You can't see it. You can't measure it. And uh, I really think it more comes down to, uh, for players, when you're dealing with players, you, you, you're coaching a team, but you're managing individuals. And when you're dealing with them, they all need what they think is confidence. But I think it's belief in their ability more than confidence. You know, belief in the, the processes of preparation and training, the, the belief in what they're able to do if they're in the right areas, it's getting into the right areas. And I think you can... You can bring confidence down to a range of processes and uh, development areas. And so, as I mentioned once, I've never heard of a surgeon about to operate and do open heart surgery and go, "Um, I'm going to call it quits. I just don't feel confident today. (laughs) They have a process to go through. They have a system to work. They've got people around them to assist them. And and you follow the processes uh, rather than worried about this overarching confidence thing. Having said that, there's there's a lot of players that I've dealt with that, that struggle to really believe how good they are. And the ones that you can talk into 
understanding how good they are, they become fantastic players, really, really good players. And and that's like turning a player around that already, to me, has the right skills and the right abilities and the tremendous dedication at training and understands that they're going to make mistakes. Perfectionists always fail. You can't be a perfectionist. You've just got to accept that there's going to be mistakes and errors and just go on with it. It was like our third grand final at Victory. Musket, Kevin Musket missed his first penalty after 17 straight, but you can't blame him for doing that. It's just one of these things. And, and you think, well, we've been three grand finals. We've done well. You have to accept that you can bounce back from it and go on to, to achieve something else. And so confidence comes through coaches. Or you can help a player through empathizing with trust. They trust you and your knowledge and experience and and talk them through it really and talk them into getting into the right areas at the right time. What can happen? And, and it's amazing how well it works. I've actually told lies to a player. I remember one player at Victory, he had a, an absolutely horrendous first half. And at halftime, I told him a lie. I said, you've had a fantastic game. Well done. Keep it up. The second half, he was outstanding. Outstanding. It wasn't Carlos Hernandez. Carlos Hernandez was a fantastic player. He used to hit rockets from about 30, 40 metres. Yeah, but I could never get Carlos fit. So the boys called him George Negus. He was stuffed after 60 minutes. <laughs> but... Uh, Carlos, I remember signing up. I, I think we've just gone. The reason I've gone to Carlos is he had so much confidence in his ability. And I used to say this thing, look, don't shoot from 25 metres. Don't watch the goal of the day or the goal of the month or all the best, most spectacular goals. It doesn't happen. Just get into the hot spot right in front of the goals and tap it in one touch, side foot it, just get the ball on target, end of story. And then, Except Carlos. Carlos was allowed to hit them from 30 metres because he could just nail them. Absolutely. Great signing for, for victory. But I never, ever managed to get Carlos fit. I wanted to ask Ernie before we finish up. Um, yeah, obviously I haven't coached since you left the Jets in, in 2020, of course. Has the clipboard, has your clipboard been put away for good? You can never say never. Um, I haven't received an offer. Um, I'm working with football. Well, I've received an offer at lower levels. It's state level, a couple of offers. <laughs> One fellow phoned me up and said, uh, we want you to come and coach our team. And I said, you're only five games into the season. This this was fairly recent. He says, yeah, but the coach is no good. I says, you've judged them after five games. He says, yes, he can't win enough games. I said, but he's only lost two. He's drawn two and he's won one. And he says, yeah, it's not good enough. So... I says, does he know you're talking to me? And he says, no, but I'll tell him after you take the job. And I said, I'm not, I'm not taking the job. He sacked him. He brought in another coach for three games, sacked him, and went back to the first one who refused to come back again. Oh I'm afraid God. it's that bad, bad. So I haven't received an offer apart from two at state league level and uh, at NPL level. I'm working with Football Coaches Australia to help professionally developed players. So there's a group of us through Glenn Worry, the CEO, Gary Cole, Ian Greener, um, Aaron Healy. We're for free. We're doing it just to give back to the game, just to try and help upskill players. And I'm going over to Hobart on Wednesday next week to, to do a session over there. So I'm doing a bit of work there. As you know, I'm working with the Saints. I got another request to write a review of sports science's application to horse racing 
which I'm in the process of doing. So because of my sports science, science exercise physiology, there's a few opportunities opened up. And there's a couple of organizations I'm talking to about working with coaches on a professional level. Ernie, thanks so much for joining us today, mate. I've loved the chat. You've got a great la- great outlook on life, certainly a great sense of humor. I haven't laughed that hard for a while. And your coaching philosophies and your managerial beliefs are just fascinating. So what a journey it's been. You've certainly lived the highs and the lows. Mate, that's elite sport, but Australia's been so lucky to have you. Well done on all you achieved, and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sam. I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.